as we read this passage of Scripture, as I mentioned to the kids, it comes right on the heels of what we read last week about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and how they returned back to Jerusalem uh, to, to celebrate with the other disciples that He is indeed risen. And it's easy for us as the, the church to forget that even though we're three weeks out from Easter, He's still risen. He's still King. He's still Lord. And, uh, and we've got some work to do because of it. This morning we're going to look at uh, uh, the fact that because He lives... Not only is He with His people, as we looked at last week, but He is also at work through His people. The Word of our Lord from the Gospel of Luke. Now as they said these things on the day of the resurrection, Jesus Himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. So He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Here, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still not believe for joy, but marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And so he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, so that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem, until you are endued with power from on high. Let's pray. O God, who made your Son known in the breaking of bread before the disciples, open the eyes of our faith so that we may behold Him in all of His redeeming work who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Why is there so much suffering in the world? So much poverty. So much despair. So much cruelty. These are commonly asked questions. Questions that the world asks. Questions that we ourselves often ask. Why is the world so messed up? Why does it seem that 
there's so much pain and sorrow and loss and so much, so much disappointment and so much striving in the world. Supposing God knows about it, does He not care? Supposing He cares about it, can He not do something? And supposing He knows and cares and can do something, does He simply just choose to do nothing? These are questions that are asked all the time by people searching for answers. These are questions that are asked all the time even by good and God-fearing Christian people. Bible-believing people. Sometimes we get to the point in our lives where we scratch our heads and we say, wait a minute, what gives here? Why are so many bad things happening? And particularly, why are so many bad things happening to good people? People that, that, that otherwise live good and, and, and pleasing lives. Folks that aren't looking for trouble but seem to inevitably find it. The gospel might not satisfy all of our desire for answers, but it does at least provide some response to our questions. Because Christ rose from the dead, He is at work in the world through His people. He ministers to the needs of the world through His people. There are some times where He intervenes in miraculous ways. Ways that are beyond explanation. Ways that science and nature cannot comprehend. Typically in places of the world that are in deep, deep need. In moments of great need. But for the most part, Christ is at work. Through His church. His people. Why does God choose to minister through the church? Why doesn't He just roll up His sleeves and do it Himself? Why does He depend upon us? Why does He entrust ministry and entrust His work of mercy to a bunch of people who often fail? Well, such is the way of grace. I've often criticized the way most people think about grace because most of us have a very minimalistic understanding of what grace is. It's just, it is simply the unmerited favor of God as though it's just a good feeling that God has for us that we don't deserve. And grace definitely does involve that. But grace is bigger than that biblically. Grace is the life and power of God. It is God at work. It is His animating work. It is through grace that He created all of the worlds. It is through grace that He made man in His image. It is through grace that He works in our lives, that He draws us to Himself. It's through grace 
that He gives us new life in Him. It's through grace that He's able to put marriages back together. It is through grace that He is able to restore health. It is His life and His power. His animating work. Grace is bigger than a feeling. It is what happens. It is what is extended to us when God is at work in our behalf. And grace often, most often, works through others. When you think about what brought you here just this morning, others were probably involved in that. Perhaps someone invited you. Perhaps someone said, hey, are we going to go to church tomorrow? And you thought, well, I guess so, now that you've asked. Perhaps it's because your wife leaned over and touched you and said, you got to get up, it's time to get ready. You should have been up an hour ago. When God is at work in our lives, He is often working through others. Some of us can look back on our lives and think back about decades where we walked away from God. But if we think back even further than that, we can remember parents and grandparents who prayed over us, who prayed for God's best in our lives. And some of them aren't able to see the fruit of their prayers. But grace works through people. God is at work in His world through His people. He is at work among His people through one another. God likes to use people to do His work. But this is not just how grace works, it's how work works. Blaise Pascal talked about the fact that God has given to human beings the dignity of causality. I love that phrase. The dignity of causality. C.S. Lewis picked up that idea from Blaise Pascal and he talked about how God has primarily entrusted humans with that dignity of causality in two modes. The first being through prayer and the other being through work. Because when God invites us to pray, He prays or He invites us to ask Him to do things that otherwise weren't happening. Lord, would you please heal this loved one of mine? Lord, would you please open up this opportunity for an interview? Why are we asking if we assume that it's just going to happen? If we just assume about our lives, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, then why pray? But the Scriptures invite us to pray. Come, make your requests known. Cast your cares upon God because He cares for you. But He's given us that dignity of causality in the opportunity of work. 
Lindsay's been doing a lot of work in, in our yard. She's been planting flowers and filling pots with dirt and all sorts of things. She says she's going to do some more work in the, in the days ahead. She got out and mowed yesterday. I'm so proud of her. I didn't have to. That's a good lady. <laughs> but when we work, we accomplish things that otherwise weren't accomplished. That's kind of a, a, a no-brainer in life, but it's something that we don't stop and think about very often. When we do something, we're causing something to be that wasn't. When, uh, when John and Charles Wesley made their trip to Georgia to minister to the Native Americans from England, one of the things that they supposedly did was plant trees. And I believe while I was in college, there was a report that came out about a pastor in a Methodist church right outside of Savannah, maybe, who commissioned a tree to be removed and he was fired for it because it was apparently a tree that I believe Wesley planted. That's pretty, pretty crazy, pretty wild. But the funny thing is that when we plant a seed or plant a little, a, a little sprout that will become a tree, we are causing something to change. We are making something. We are creating something. That's how God works. He ministers through His people. When we realize that God works through His church, the question that we then ought to ask is, well, why ought we to minister to others? There's the old biblical adage of to whom much is given. From that one, much is required. And we could equally say, for whom much has been done... From that one, much is required. When we read about the resurrection of Jesus, we read about God's great salvation in our behalf. We read about what, what God has done through His eternal Son to redeem His people, to ransom those who were lost, to bring them back to himself, to bring them back into the fold. And so the burden of responsibility rests upon those who have been brought into the fold to go out and to bring others into the fold, to go out and to compel others to come, to say, God's grace has been so great for me, I must share it with someone else. God's work in my life has been so dynamic, so transformative, so life changing. I must, I would be a fool and I would be calloused to not go and to share it with others. So there's this burden of oughtness that ought to rest upon the people of God. Because God has brought us in, we ought to bring others in. And we bring others in through the work of ministry. Another reason that we ought to minister to others 
is because new creation requires new creativity. The story of the resurrection is the story of new creation. That God is putting all things that have been broken back together. He is putting back together the brokenness of humanity. He is putting back together the brokenness that is brought by death. He is reversing those things that have damaged His creation. He is creating all things new. And Paul, the apostle, said that when we find ourselves coming to Christ, when, when any man is in Christ, boom, you have new creation. And so this idea that God is putting the world back together, it requires us to be a part of putting the world back together. New creation necessitates new creativity. He invites us to come to bring our creativity. That's not just imagination, but, but our work, our ability to, to minister in His behalf. He uses it in bringing about new creation. I love this story because it is so filled with obscurity and nuance. You know, when we think about the resurrection of Jesus, we often we often have a a very big lead up to the cross. We've got, you know, a big lead up through the week of passion and all the things that Jesus is doing and his suffering and his death and it goes on and and we tell a lot of the story and we talk we talk about all the things that happened, all the 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 crown of thorns that were formed for his for his head. We we talk about how his garments were taken from him and that one seamless tunic how it was gambled for. And all the things that happened when Christ hung upon the cross. The words that He spoke. But when we get to the resurrection, if we're not careful, the church will often say, oh yeah, and then on the third day He rose again and He's at the Father's right hand and one day He's coming back. But I love this story from Luke because you've got so many really odd details You've got the two you got the story of the fact that he's risen and the disciples are wondering what in the world has happened. And then you've got this story of, of two disciples. We only know one of the one of their names, Cleopas, and they're walking to Emmaus. It's seven miles outside of Jerusalem, and along comes a stranger, and they don't realize who the stranger is, but it's Jesus. And they're debating, they're talking, they're weeping. They're talking about how bad things have been, and what is going on? Where is his body anyway? They said he rose from the dead, but that's not possible. That sort of thing just doesn't happen. And Jesus asked them, well, what are you doing? What are you talking about? What are you complaining about? What's, what's, got, you, what's got you so down in life? They say, oh my goodness, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know about Jesus? And he's like, well, what? what? And so you remember from last week, they get to the town. They, they still don't realize who he is. It's getting dark. It's getting late. And he's going to press on. 
And they say, no, 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 you stay back, stay back. So he comes into the house, and he's continuing to talk to them about the Scriptures, and he breaks bread, and suddenly they realize, oh my goodness. And he's gone. And so then this story picks up. They, they, they run back to Jerusalem. They get to the house. Guess what, folks? And the other disciples who are already there say, Jesus is risen. He's already appeared to Simon. And they say, yeah, we were, we were seven miles away. And we've just run back. And we met him. And then, boom, here he comes. He walks into the room out of nowhere. And everyone's just blown away. And the first thing he says to them is peace. We often think of Jesus as kind of hippie Jesus, especially Sermon on the Mount. We think he's very hippie. But it is funny that the first thing he greets them with is peace. So here he is. He shows up and he says, peace to you. And all of those who are convinced that he's raised from the dead, because they've now heard testimony from Mary and the others and Simon and now these two disciples, they're still all startled when he walks in the room. And they're thinking, this is not normal. And so Jesus goes to great lengths to prove to them that he is perfectly normal right now. He's a different level of normal than they're used to, but he's perfectly normal. And he tells them, take a look at my hands and my feet. Here, touch them. You're curious? Touch them. That's real skin and real bones. And they're still just perplexed. They're still confused. They're still thinking this is, this is not in our normal realm of normal. And so he asks, do you have anything to eat? Do you have anything to eat? You can imagine them thinking, oh, uh, didn't expect that. Hang on one second. So they broil him some fish and get him some honeycomb. And he eats it. It's, it's like Jesus trying to prove the point that it's really me. Yes, I was really dead, but I am really back to life. And then as though they don't understand enough, he begins teaching them again. He begins opening up to them the scriptures and showing them that this is exactly what I've been telling you was going to happen. I've been warning you that I would be killed, that I would be dead, but that I would rise again on the third day. And this is the fulfillment of scripture about me. You thought I was the Messiah and then you're shocked that I went through what the Messiah was supposed to go through. But he tells them all this happened so that repentance from sin and the remission of sins could be preached in my name to all nations. And he tells them, you are my witnesses. You have seen what has happened and you have a story to tell. He says that this has all happened 
in order to give way to the preaching of repentance and the preaching of remission. And he uses that kind of as a a summary idea of the work of ministry. The resurrection took place so that the world could have hope. So that the world could hear the testimony of lives that have been put back together and the promise that He is able, the one who has put those lives back together, is able to do all things. And He's able to put all lives back together. In fact, He's putting the whole world back together. He is making all things new. And so if that's the story that we have to tell to others, the question is, how do we tell it? How ought we to tell it? How ought we minister to others? And the Scriptures give to us at least three different ways that we ought to be ministering to others. As Bill read this morning, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That God is is imploring the world through us to be reconciled with Himself. That He has made a way through His Son Jesus. Come and find life put back together. And much of what the church does is by necessity... Offering the hope of life put back together. Offering the hope of a relationship with God that was broken and torn apart that can be restored and mended and put back together. If, if, if those who have made themselves enemies of God will simply lay down their arms. But there's another way that we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel not just through words of hope, but through acts and deeds that instill hope and offer substantial reminders that God cares about all of our lives through the ministry of compassion. This week I was excited that the Braves were back in business and so far it hasn't been very much to be excited about. But while I was excited about the Braves getting back into business, it occurred to me that one of one of Atlanta's very very favorite players, Mr. Freddie Freeman, he is a sixth generation member of the Salvation Army. Did anyone know that? Six, now he's, his parents were Canadian. He's Canadian American. But he's a sixth generation Salvationist. And I thought, well, that's peculiar. So it got me on a rabbit trail. 
And, of course, many of you know the story of William and Catherine Booth and how they established the Salvation Army back in the 1800s and how he was a Methodist minister, he was a a circuit rider, and and how they, they saw such great physical need it's been attributed to to uh, to William Booth as saying that folks couldn't hear the the sound of the gospel over the sound of their stomachs rumbling, and so they established the Salvation Army. And this is a quote from Reverend Booth. He said, "I have no intention to to depart in the smallest degree from the main principles on which I have acted in the past. My only hope for the permanent deliverance of mankind from misery, either in this world or in the next, is the regeneration or the remaking of the individual by the power of the Holy Ghost through Jesus Christ. He's saying that the only ultimate hope for us is through salvation. He says, but in providing for the relief of temporary misery, I reckon that I am only making it easy where it is now difficult and possible where it is now all but impossible for men and women to find their way to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of the ministry of the church is offering the world tangible reminders that God cares and that God offers hope, that God offers new life. And much of that is done through the work of compassionate ministry. Through working to alleviate suffering for others. As we're called to minister, we're called to minister through offering the world reconciliation, through offering compassion, but also through offering transformation. The promise that God is not just bringing us back into the fold, but He is making us new. And He, is, he offers personal transformation He offers familial transformation. He offers communal transformation. And He even offers cultural transformation. What this means is that God is not satisfied with just a few individuals being brought into the fold. He wants to transform their lives so that He can transform their families. And those families can begin transforming their communities. And for those of us who lament how culture is, 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 seems to be falling out from under us, we offer no hope to our nation and we offer no hope to the world apart from the hope that lives and families and communities can be put back together and can be transformed. And therefore, all of the world and all of our culture can be transformed. So when we minister, we ought to minister in the hope of Christ in intangible ways and with the big picture in mind. The good news for us is that we're not left on our own. We're not left working in our own strength. We're not left working in our own energy. But instead, the Spirit of God is what gives life to the ministry of the church. Just as the Spirit 
raised Christ Jesus from the dead, Paul the Apostle said to the Romans, He is able to give life to our mortal bodies through that very same Spirit. It is the Spirit who animates the church's ministry. And Jesus here in this text, He offers us three reminders through His promises. He offers us the promise of His peace. Peace to you. He offers us the promise of His power. He tells them that they're going to tarry or to wait in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them so that they can be His ministers throughout all of the nations of the earth. But in promising them the the peace of His Spirit and the power of His Spirit, He is promising them also His presence to them. When they hear these words that that the Spirit is coming to enliven them, their thoughts probably went back just a few days to Maundy Thursday when Jesus had told them that He would not leave them alone. Yes, He was going away, but He was coming back again through another person and in another person. The Spirit. He called Him the promise of the Father. And so, on this side of Resurrection Sunday, on this side of Easter, as we talk about the fact that Christ lives and is at work through His people, we also glance ahead to the promise that is Pentecost, because Pentecost is coming. When the Spirit was poured out upon all flesh, when the Spirit of God took up residence in the hearts of of His people. Bringing peace and power and presence. Because He lives, Christ is at work through His people. And you and I have opportunities to take action To get involved. To yield ourselves to Him so that He might work through us. We've got just this this week, two opportunities to share the love of Jesus with those who are in deep need. As Bill announced on Saturday, we will be going to Mr. Hallowell's house, a man who's hardly able been hardly able for 20 some odd years to leave his home other than for doctor's appointments or occasional grocery runs. Typically folks are doing that sort of thing for him, going to get groceries and whatnot. And we're going to be of help to him. But Wednesday, we've got the opportunity to invest ourselves in the lives of, I believe, 44 young people who live without family. And who are in deep need of knowing that people love them and care for them. God is opening up doors And opening up before us opportunities to share His love with others through ministry. 
He's at work because He lives through His people. May we be found faithful. May we yield ourselves to His work and say, Lord, would You use me to share Your love and Your grace, Your mercy and Your compassion with someone else. May that be the cry of our hearts. Let's pray.